2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Anthropology, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Regan Gillum, a host of the channel. And today we're talking with Dr. Matilde Cordoba-Azcarate about her book, Stuck with Tourism, Space, Power, and Labor in Contemporary Yucatan, published by the University of California Press. Dr. Azcarate, welcome to the show. Thank you so
1: much, Regan. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for uh, offering to share your book with us. And so by way of an introduction, I was going to ask you to share a bit about your background. So in your book, you focus on the development of tourist industries in the Yucatan. And can mm-hmm. you tell us how you came to write this book?
1: Yes, of course. Um, you know, I there are always some um, relative information about what the behind the scenes Elements are in writing a book that can guide the reader. So I I thought about some of them, and um, I think one of the most important ones would be, you know, to highlight that this book is the result of a very long-term engagement with the region, that is both a personal engagement and also an academic one, and um, it it really. It started as a, as a personal book in a family trip in 1994 that was like a very convoluted year in Mexican history, you know, with the rise of the Tapatista movement, but also the assassination of Colosio. And um, in, in you know, in that result of personal interest, um, I also brought there to the book and something interesting to note is that I always had an interest in Latin American literature in. Magical Realism at the beginning that evolved into, you know, an academic interest in the area through an encounter with um, authors as Oscar Lewis, Michael Radcliffe, and June Nash um, later on in my, you know, in a year abroad uh, in the United Kingdom. And I also brought there to the book um, Passion for Kinship and Passion for Kinship, storytelling that later on led me to an undergrad in sociology and a master's undergrad and graduate studies in anthropology. All of them I did in Spain, the Universidad Complutense de Madrid, which is the biggest public university in Spain. And, you know, and to focus around study of social inequalities broadly. So something interesting to highlight here is that the book that you've read is not the result, it's not a direct result of a PhD, although it partially builds on it. I I would say I began conceptualizing it after completing my PhD in anthropology, which I finished in 2007, uh, during postdoctoral research as a Fulbright Fellow in CUNY in the Graduate Center, around 2010-2012. Um, and it's the result of an you know the international um Interdisciplinary nature of my dual training, as well as engagement later on with, you know, critical geography, human ecology, American studies, and communication in very different places. In Spain, where I'm from, in Madrid, in the United Kingdom, I studied at Lancaster University in sociology. Also in Mexico, where I did um, several research stays at the Simba staff and. Um, other institutions, and also too in the United States, but later on in my career. So I was required to move between disciplines, but also different ways of understanding boundaries between disciplines that I think is something that I hope comes up in the book. Um, And my interest in tourism, you know, it came later on at the time of writing the PhD. And it was as part of selecting topics to do like the first anthropological fieldwork, which in Spain was mandatory to do in the area where your mentor was an expert in. And I worked under the directorship of Professor José Luis García García, who was an expert in discourse analysis and mining communities in the north of Spain. So I, I start with the idea of doing fieldwork in a mining community in Asturias, and it sounded very daunting for me. And I was really interested in questions of development discourse in a very, you know, post-structuralist way. I wanted to understand discourses around uh, development needs and labor struggles. In the north of Spain, and in rural areas in particular, but mining sounded a bit too much for me. So looking for alternatives, we both found that tourism was at the moment, and I'm talking about the early '90s, um, was at the moment like funded by the European Union as one of the um, main development strategies um, for rural areas in Spain and in France, Italy, and other places around Europe. So I I ran into tourism in this, you know, in this way, and. And that very fastly by working in Asturias in the north of Spain in a little village called Taramundi, it was what really awoke my interest in heritage politics, in labor struggles, in questions of social reproduction, and ultimately in the social production of space. And later on, you know, on disaster capitalism and mobilities that are also there in the book.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the book is very, um, very interdisciplinary. And, um, and I'm sure the readers will really appreciate that about the book. And so you focus on different locations in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, uh, for the book. And from the text, the Yucatan seems to be a place that's set apart, or distinct in the Mexican national imagination. Um, It seems to be the home of the indigenous Maya, and it's full of, of various archaeological sites of ancient ruins. Can you orient us to the Yucatan region and tell us about it as a site to study tourism?
1: Yes, of course. And is it this is like you know it, it's a, a great and probably the most difficult question like tourism, what Yucatan is or how it how you know how to approach it because it's such a prolific region in you know it figures prominently. In popular imaginaries about place, but also in academic ones, right? So, in in the popular imaginary, um, and and mostly in the United States, the Yucatan Peninsula is considered as you know as Gringolandia, as like a playground for North Americans, Canadian, and European tourists too. But it has not always been the case, like you know, tourism in the Yucatan. Um, it started less than fifty years ago, and it has now become overly present. Um, it also figures, you know, um, majorly in the popular imagination as a place where the dinosaur age um, collapsed um, in the Yucatan Peninsula, close to the port of Progreso by the Gulf of Mexico. You will find the Chicxulub crater um, that is thought to be the place where the meteorites um, fall that marked the end of the dinosaur age. And the region is also known to be like a central node of the Mesoamerican culture and one of the six cradles of civilization. And, you know, that, that would be like the popular imagination of the region. But if we think about the academic one and the popular imagination of the region is deeply influenced by the academic one, we would see that the Yucatan Peninsula figures prominently as an object of scientific inquiry into culture, into Mayan culture uh, particularly, and is like um, a major object of study for anthropologists, classical ones, um, archaeologists and historians. And it is in this scholarly work that you know um, that depictions of the Yucatan, as you say, Reagan, as a world apart as a marginal periphery, as another Mexico emerges. Um, And it's very important to think that this, um, you know, that the Yucatan Peninsula is part of Mexico, although it's relatively isolated from the rest of the Mexican geography. It has three states, it's, you know, it's located between the Gulf of Mexico coast to the west and north and the Caribbean Sea in the other side. Um, And it's you know it's geologically a region that features a unique physiographic conditions such as karstic limestone. That you know, if I had to translate it, I would say it's a region that has no mountains and that has no superficial rivers. Um, and it's a region that, as the rest of the Caribbean and other Latin American scenarios, you know, it, it has been characterized by physical mobilities um, that uh, you know of migrants and importantly resources economically. The region was, um, for the most part of the 20th and, and uh, 19th and 20th century, it was dependent on a monocrop economy called Eneken uh, or sisal, uh, that was um, an export industry. So the Yucatan produce, you know, produced and distributed the Anakin, that was this fiber that was used in the ship industry, and um, mostly in the United States and, and Canada. And this industry collapsed at the end of the, um, at the I would say in the mid-60s, due to the introduction of nylon. And the important thing about the Anakin industry is that it was not only an economic system, but it was also a socio-political and a cultural one. So it really organized deeply social relations and cultural imagination of the region. And it was a, as a result of the nylon, um, the introduction of the nylon in the global market and the demise of the enneken that the Mexican state started to think about tourism. And, and they started to think about tourism as a development strategy in really in modernization terms, like let's get the Yucatan region out of this pocket of poverty where it has uh, where well, the NECN demise has left them. Um, and let's envisage a city um, as an engine to modernize um, and induce progress to you know to a region conceptualized still in the academic imagination as an indigenous region that needed to catch up with progress. And it is exactly there where my ethnographies start, you know, in the present, um, which is a present that is deeply informed by both these academic and popular imaginations. Mm
2: -hmm. And so your ethnography, it looks in depth at four different sites in the Yucatan, um, Cancun, Salastun, Temozón, and Tequit. And case study focuses on a different form of tourism and you argue that tourism rearranges spaces and extracts resources from a given location. Um, So how does tourism contribute to the reorganization of space? And can you give an example from a particular case?
1: Sure. Something, you know, when when Cancun was created in 1974 by the Mexican state at this engine for development, um, that completely rearranged spatially, socially, culturally, economically, the, demographically, the region. And it is in that moment, you know, that um, that that I really situate what I'm arguing in the introduction of the book, that it's um, understanding tourism as an ordering, right? It's, it's, a, it's a process that works by, as you said, like reorganizing space, um, it does so by scaling up particular places in particular ways, like tourism, when it works as a state development tool. It really engineers places under the tourist gaze. So it's, once a particular place gets reorganized under the tourist gaze, it starts to interpolate us in a different way. Like, for example, if we think about Cancun as a beach tourism destination, Right, I'm sure like there is something that immediately comes up in your mind, um, and it really doesn't matter if you enjoy this form of tourism or not. I'm sure that when I said Cancun and I said idealized beachscape beach or Caribbean beach, you're thinking about a particular texture of the sand and particular colors into the ocean, and also particular you know experiences there. Like you want to relax, you want to escape. Um, And remaining in that um, space, in, in that space of the imaginary, like for Cancun to remain in that, playing as that, you know, place image in the global market, there is a lot of labor involved. And the labor that goes into creating and securing Cancun in its representation for the global market is the one that I've looked at and the one that i've been interested in so in that sense what i am talking about you know um, tourism reorganizing space it does so by extracting and the way in which i'm i've been thinking about these and different ways in which this reorganization of space geographical space symbolic space right Political and ecological spaces come forward is by thinking about extraction. Like tourism, um, as you were saying, you know, rearranges a space in a predatory way because when it's coupled with state development, it really acts like a classic extractive industry. You know, it obeys some multiscalar logics that manufacture consent around the place, like Cancun as an idealized beach scape. It is capital intensive, it reduces life and animal species as pink flamingos that um, you read in the book to capitalist resource conversion and surrenders life and its futures to to financial whims. Um, Tourism development is still premised upon territorial enclaves and in order to imagine a Caribbean beach in the way that I have described before, you really need a coastal area. You really need to be at the point in the planet where the sand and land meets the ocean. And in that way, you know, classic extractive industries work in that way. You think about mining or extractive pits. You can think about tourism destinations in the same way. Um, the tourism industry also rearranges space in this predatory fashion because it's always looking for new assets. But differently from other extractive industries, um, the assets that can be incorporated into the tourism industry are really endless, like everything can fall into the tourist gaze, from an emotion to a particular natural resource. And... Um, something that I found interesting to think about the spatial reorganization and extractivism together is to think about tourism development as a terraforming activity. Uh, We normally think about tourism in terms of consumption, and in this book, um, I really opted for thinking about tourism in terms of production, although you can see a tension between production and consumption in the book, but I really paid attention to Labor. If if you think about um, tourism reorganizing space um, in these predatory ways, something interesting in the in the example of Cancun, for example, is that to keep the sand texture and to keep the color, that turquoise color of the ocean that you are expecting, demands naturalizing particular extractive processes, as that of dredging sand from coral reefs, because that the coral reefs from the you know, are the ones that are going to bring the the desired texture back into the beach. And it also naturalizes particular um, architectures or what I call in the chapter architectures of escape that are highly enclosed architectures and infrastructure developments that enable um, consumers of that, of that particular space to... Um, don't have interference with what is going out of the of the bubble of relax and, and escape. Another example I can, you know, you can um, see this and I can and I thought about is if you think about um, ecotourism development in Celestun, you're gonna think about how uh, what was a fishing community, a very large fishing community, when ecotourism started there as a state development tool. It really uh, became spatially and socially reorganized around a particular flagship, flagship, you know, um, a species, the pink flamingo, and hence tourism flows, but also labor and capital, and um, you know, kinship relations became completely reorganized around where the pink flamingo was at the storey and at the beach and the rest of the community. And it's a huge community of over 10,000 people became completely neglected under state development tools. And it is this naturalization of extraction, the one that has always also and always interested me all the time. Um, Last example that um, I would say that I think it it becomes... um, clear that tourism is reorganizing space and extracting, you know, labor, but also health, is if you think through um, the emergence of villages in the chapter of Tequit that have become factory villages to produce souvenirs and hotel uniforms for the mega developments of resort tourism along the Caribbean, but also for architectural and archaeological tourism inside the region, right? The villages that manufacture guayaberas for, as as I said, for for tourism, um, for the hospitality industry. Uh, In those villages, like from the early 2000s, that the state and also the UN is going to put a lot of weight into the development of cultural tourism as an alternative to resort tourism, um, we're gonna see the formation of really unique um, urban configurations that I call desacoras, following Asian literature. That are spaces that are neither rural nor urban, but where people really inhabit rural lifestyles by and and, and you know and, and rural cosmovisions by really engaging in urban time zones and in. Uh, forms of labor that are more typical of maquiladoras in the north of the country than what they are in the southern part of Mexico, as Yucatan can be so far away from the border. So those would be some examples. I'm thinking too about, you know, the extraction of the past and by Hacienda tourism development and how by extracting particular ideas of what the past uh, related to the Hanukkah Times was, is naturalizing selective processes of architectural restoration in inland Yucatan and also bringing back indigenous workers in very problematic ways into the labor force. Mm
2: -hmm. And so um, you mentioned that the book is about, and you wanted to focus on um, production and labor, and, um, and so you do just that. And so in turning to the workers, um, you describe tourism as creating a kind of stickiness for the workers holding them in place. And those, and those who are stuck in a tourism and in tourism economy rely on these sacrificial logics to, to justify their situation. And so can you talk about the stickiness? How do they get stuck? Um, what does that mean? And um, and these sacrificial logics of the workers, what, what kinds of logics do they use to um, to justify the, the, the conditions that they find themselves in?
1: Yes, I'm, I'm really happy that you're bringing this forward and that you're bringing, bringing them together. Like a stickiness and sacrificial logic, it has been a real challenge to really write about. It, it's been very obvious on the ground and then... Um, I've learned how hard it is to communicate particular ideas in paper and writing in a language that is not my own. So I'm really happy the way that you're formulating this question, because, you know, um, this tension um, between stickiness, sacrificial logic, and predation has not been always easy to unwrap and get together in kind of a and narrative. And while you know the predatory logic that we've just discussed um, about tourism is easier to see and to understand, although I think there is still a lot of work to do in order to make it more evident for a lot of um, for a lot of um, disciplines, you know, to resituate tourism as this really major force in the organization of the geographies of late capitalism. Stickiness has not been so easy for me in terms of even conceptualizing it. Um, For a long time, I thought this was a question of, you know, the old dependency story systems theory going on. But the more I talk to many different people, you know, in Yucatan from academics to service workers, to people that had nothing to do with the tourism industry, yet were deeply affected by it, the more I understood that something, and and the more to the front came one um, specific word that they were using all the time. And it's a Spanish word that um, you would say, they would say, we feel stapled here. We feel stapled to tourism. That would translate by... Estamos en grapados al turismo, that I translated by a form of stickiness. It is in this tension, you know, where where my book aims to make an intervention. I want to situate the reader in the moral ambivalences that tourism development brings forward. Um, And in this, the, the way I've, to talk about these moral ambivalences is to really think about entrapment and by entrapment uh, people in Yucatan are not only talking about the economy and they are not talking about tourism as being a job they're talking about being entrapped in these sacrificial logics in which predating makes sense to move forward so exactly as you've said you know Stickiness and sacrificial logics go hand in hand, and what I was able to see is that in many ways people were explaining that, you know, tourism entraps and um, attracts and stuck us in place because it enables and it provides uh, for the amelioration of otherwise pre- precarious presence. Right, in, and when they when they were talking about um, being stuck, they were always talking about, um, they were always talking in terms that we could say were place-specific, that in many ways it basically meant, um, on the one hand, not having to migrate, mostly to the United States, or not having to migrate from rural inland areas to um, spaces of perversion, as they imagined them to be, like Cancun, Uh, or not having to take that route of, you know, um, being uprooted from the land and the people that they loved. So they, they were always using, you know, the idea of stickiness and being stuck to tourism in a very bittersweet tone that expressed inescapability of tourism representations and tourism infrastructure in the everyday really like I've been coming back to the Yucatan Peninsula for the past 20 years, and it's hard to communicate the voracity in which tourism infrastructure permeates absolutely everything. And it it has happened in, in very intense ways. So they were referring to this inescapability of tourism resp- representation, also the inescapability of having tourists all around it was also, you know, it, when they were talking about um, being in to tourism, being stuck to tourism, they were also referring to, they were establishing a relationship with time. They were establishing a relationship with the Anakin times and um, um, forms of exploitation and forms of servitude that they that were still very present in in elder generations that had actually worked for Haciendas that were the main houses um, where Anakin processing and the exporting took took place. So they were highlighting a kind of um, reaction to the dependency that was opened by particular crisis and the way in which the Mexican state related to those crises. And they were accepting it in some way that the, the region needed state intervention. Um, and at the same time, they were establishing a relationship to the way in which they were living and they lived the the demise. And it's also, I found stickiness like a more malleable concept to think through. It also brought in a lot of effect. That is something that, um Sarah Hamed talks about you know there is a saturation of effects when we get stuck um in a particular moment, you know, in the common common sense use of being stuck um, you know. Or being particularly attached to a particular place, not that much as we are thinking about right now with coronavirus, right? Like we are stuck at home, um, but which is also place, places specific, right? But there is effect going on. It might be fear, but it might be also as it happens with tourism, it is basically the promise of a better life. So I, I think you know the way in which I thought about stickiness and sacrificial logic was really to bring forth how people were trapped in these contradictory moral regimes in which, you know, to sacrifice the present, to sacrifice your health, in the case, for example, of Luis and Lucia that are in the lowest steps of the Guayabera production um, change, that are getting blind, that are hardly making it, and they are financially indebted, um, but are still talking about working for tourism as a true, true job as something that enables them to stay together. Um, that I, yeah, I, I think you know it, it's is the way in which people you know strategically decide with what parts of depredation the they want to get forward. And there is agency in this stickiness. There is abolition and there is a desire. Sometimes, um, you know, as, as it might happen in Cancun, like after disaster, workers are really pushed to reconstruct the hotel zone before attending to their own families. And you can argue, are they, you know, are they free to do this or do they have a choice? Um, or not, but the fact that many of them are deciding to reconstruct the hotel zone because they know, as they say, that that the hotel zone in Cancun is the chicken of the golden eggs. You know, makes the revolution there. Is volition there um, at least in the micron individual level, not that much if we look at the structural level.
0: <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: And so um so you mentioned the the couple who were um you know sewing the shirts and you mentioned how um you know they were going blind uh, because of the the kind of the kind of labor that that goes into um clothing construction and so that leads me to the next question of uh what effects do the, does this expansive tourist economy have on the lives of the workers and um did you see any any resistance at all on the part of the workers to the problems that they faced in in trying to manage these kinds of conditions.
1: Yes. And and this is like a question that, um, you know, I would say like if if I were to answer um, in a a very short way, I would say, you know, the effects have been varied. They've been very positive and they've been very negative. I've tried to run away from, um, from what happens a lot with tourism literature that ends up being an evaluation of, oh, tourism works or tourism does not work. It has, it has good effects or bad effects. But something important that I would say here is that, you know, I, I've thought about this question a lot. And when I found myself being too pessimistic, I was always thinking about, you know, in in how many ways tourism has helped and how. So this has been a tension that I've been trying to pay attention. And I've done so you know, um, a different scale. So I would say, you know, there is a, a question of scale of analysis and also of people's own positionality in regard to the tourism uh, industry or uh, or, um, or to particular tourism ventures that we need to look at in order to See what have been the effects in the lives of workers, and and in the life of a lot of academics and you know public persons and of public uh, public um, figures you know scholars and technicians and NGOs uh, NGO volunteers that are really working in the region with their, the best of the intentions. Um, I would say like if you think in the micro scale, you know, if you think in terms of the present of the everyday and if you think short term, you can you will find that a lot of people in Yucatan say tourism is really good. Like it leaves money in our pockets that allow for conspicuous consumption and that has also allowed for the empowerment of many indigenous women. This is something important to highlight because when, if if it's not tourism as they say, we have migration, and conspicuous consumption and money in the pocket at the end of the week um, that can be used uh, for something that is not food for your family or shelter for your family is something that a migration to the United States that not that's not allowed, um, and and the same goes for. Uh, this empowerment of indigenous women. As I was talking, for example, you can think about Mari Carmen in Tekid who owns her own Guayabera factory and has been able to study and has been able to supervise and have like um, a very important role within um, Maya cosmology, like supervising their elders. There are tensions in that, but there is also a lot of empowerment there. We can also... Th- See that empowerment in, you know, in the women that work at the haciendas, where they use uh, particular resistances, as the one, the ones that you will find in maquiladoras in the north of the U.S.-Mexico border, where they can slow their work um, in order to put forward particular interests for their families and also for the community and by ways of working for the tourism industry in the haciendas, they've managed to ameliorate, you know, life in the village. They have, um, you know, dengue fumigation, or right now they have been able to fight for chikungunya fumigation, for example, which is important, and also create schools in the village. Um, Also, you can think about, you know, the, the basic positive effects that tourism has everywhere. It provides job, it provides infrastructure development. That means, you know, commuting to work easier. That means sanitation and that means more education. However, and, and you can see that at a micro scale. However, you know, if you look at the macro scale um, and think about um, tourism effects in the lives of workers, in a more macro level, in a more sociological level. I would say my account is way more negative, you know. I would say tourism development is is a poisoned gift, is a poisoned endeavor if you want. It dispossesses people from land and labor, it dispossesses people from imagining their own futures. And this is important uh, to, th- to think about in relation to my earlier point saying that tourism is an extractive industry and that works by predating because unlike other classic extractive industries you know tourism opens up spaces of hope and possibility when you have nothing in your city and suddenly you have like a five star hotel arriving and a lot of foreigners visiting the village and a lot of attention to your cultural practices and an empowerment of the people and at least of the cultural milieu around you, right? That's hard to give up. Um, it's it's present, you know. The presence of tourism development right now is so strong in Yucatan, and it's so strong in places as Bali or Hawaii that it might be already too late to diversify and to really get away in a more positive way about the kind of futures that tourism is enabling. I would say in terms of resistance to problems, this is also, you know, a question I've more recently thought in relation to other Latin American scenarios where indigenous activism and its translation into governance structures is salient, like, Bolivia or Ecuador and even other parts of Mexico like Guatemala, where right now there is a big indigenous opposition to Trend Maya. I would say I have not found that resistance to tourism and resistance to tourism problems in the same way in the Yucatan. This is a question I'm still thinking about. Um, I, I think there is a historical reason for that. Um, it is that the Yucatan has always been Ready for extraction, and it inhabits in this very extractive past that has created particular dispositions with regards to the state, with regards to natural resources, with regards to labor. Um, And that might be one of the reasons why we've, I mean, tourism development has been able to advance in such a predatory way.
2: So, I wanted to turn to the research um, that you that you undertook to to write the book. And so I wondered the book contains a series of interactions with different interlocutors across the power spectrum, from workers to tourists to managers. Um, and you talk with and observe people in the hotels and resorts as well as work with homes and communities. And so I wondered how you negotiated these different spaces across the power spectrum. Were there challenges that emerged from crossing um, these various boundaries and spaces as you undertook this this ethnographic research in the field?
1: Yes, like definitely a lot of challenges. Um, uh, definitely a lot. And I would say, you know, engaging with so many actors and engaging with so many places has been one of the, best things about writing this book. It has been wonderful, uh, but it has brought a lot of negotiation and many different challenges at different spectrums Um, from, you know, having access to interview people, having, you know, resources to get there to the Yucatan very early on in my career. Um, And I would say, you know, those challenges and the research I would say the challenges have come at, at different areas there. I have found, you know, theoretical or methodological challenges. Um, I was trained in qualitative methods um, within sociology in Spain with the work of Jesus Ibanez, who is a proponent of participative methodologies and a, a, an advocate We were like advocates of that school that moved sociology away from statistic analysis into the cultural aspects of structures. Um, so that was my first take in approaching research, right, and into how we produce knowledge. Um, and, and very soon I was fascinated by ethnography, um, but studying in Spain... In the 90s, 90s it meant um, doing and being trained in a very classic anthropology, 100% ala Malinowski. You know, we had to do fieldwork um, for a year in a remote location different from our own. I chose, you know, I was born and raised in Madrid, in the capital of Spain, and I chose to do my work in a, this rural community in Asturias. Um, and that was where I learned by working with elderly populations. Um, I learned a lot about silences and I le- learned a lot about how to negotiate my own, you know, urban self in a rural landscape that I was not aware of. But I all. I was always trying to see regularities and systemic relations. And I think that's something that permeates the entire book. Um, I learned to see them first and then to go down if you want or to zoom in to the personal. And through that process of like, you know, going from structure to practice um, and experience is that I discovered and got engaged with multi-sided ethnography and followed imaginations and chains of you know speculations if you want um, that never sat really nicely in my department in Spain that was more orthodox so I was always forced to bring those flows and mobilities and connections back to back to reality and um, for them uh, really pushing me to think you know poverty, is very real, so you can think about speculation, you can think about flows, but you really need to establish connections with the people that are suffering poverty in a very material way. Um, so I found, you know, in establishing establishing and negotiating those theoretical um, approaches and those differences in methodological scope, I that's that's part of what makes the book. Um, different insofar as you're going to see like very different um, uh, approaches like while Cancun chapter might read more aerial and more institutional and more into urban planning, then you will find the case of Tequit to be really constructed the other way around, where you have kinship and you have storytelling and you have the personal made and walk you to the structure. But there is always this tension in the book that was one that I had to negotiate. The other, I would say, the other kind of struggles or negotiations going on were more personal ones or the ones that come from, you know, from more personal conditions. That is everything that did not go into the book, right? It's starting research in Yucatan as a Spanish scholar and as, and, and above all, like, you know, as, as a Spanish student, as, as someone that looked gringo but spoke perfect Spanish and and that opened a lot of doors because that signaled to that signaled to an interest in culture. When I arrived to the Yucatan I worked in Celestun and Celestun is not an indigenous place. It's a place where where Spanish or Castilian uh, as we would say, is the main language. So that very easily opened a lot of doors for me because they were seeing um, a green gap, but they were relating to someone that could really speak the language at Connect um, by talking about, you know, culture and also not talking about nature that much because that was like a natural protected area and all the visitors and academics they received were really from the natural sciences. So language was important, being, you know, um, arriving there, uh, you know, as a student um, from Spain, then coming back to the region months later and years later, I came back, you know, married but without children, Then I came back married with one child. I came back then, you know, alone without them, but people knowing I was already in a relationship and had children, which kind of secured my position in in a lot of ways uh, with a lot of interlocutors, you know. It gave um, trust in the sense of places I would be allowed to enter. Um, I also, you know, came back with... My little daughter, and um, that opened up another whole load of, you know, relationships. And um, and I came back over time with different academic positions and, and funding bodies. So all the first part of my research, all my postdoc, or, or, sorry, all my, you know, undergrads, um undergrad experience in the Yucatan and graduate experience I did thanks to a fellowship from the Ministry of Spain, but was really succinct. So I had no resources and I had to learn ways to cope and really exchange information because Felistun was, as they, as I said in the book, was locally referred to as the Afghanistan of the Mayan coast. Um, it was a very conflictive space, but I very soon learned to exchange what I knew about English and how to speak English and help the craft women at the beach and through them and um, working and looking after their kids, I would then have access to the you know to the boatman at the RIA. And I would say the most difficult part and challenges had been really um, accessing city councils and accessing institutions uh, because it's a very male-centered environment too, um, because of corruption, as it happens everywhere. But when you have like a foreigner looking into the um there there's a lot of suspicion. So it took me a lot of coming back and returning to the area to be able to access particular documents. Yucatan is also a region where city council, government changes every three years. And the first time I heard this, they were telling me, you know, do all the research that you need in three years because after those three years, like they're going to burn all the materials mm-hmm. in the city council. And they and I, I thought it was metaphorical, but it was not metaphorical. So, you know, documents kept changing all the time. And that was definitely, definitely... A challenge. And, um, you know, another one was kind of creating and respecting limits to the things that I could explore in each site once I understood this was a book and that um, cases needed to talk to each other. So I was always in this process of a schizophrenic moment of you want to look more into a particular aspect, hence, you know, your time in the field is limited. And, and, and that is, I mean, you know, and there's a particular avenue that goes into something that you can already see is bigger. So I had to learn to put that aside, you know, to have a field work diary where I would put all those projects, um, that I wanted to look at, that I thought they were connected, but at this point, you know, um, I, I had to let them go.
2: Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about, um, being in the field and having to think about understanding understanding it as a book and having to think about how these different sections speak to each other, um, because because the book is very cohesive and you you know you find these similar patterns at least um, of spatial arrangement and labor extraction um, occurring across different sites and you really um, you really bring that out across all of the different cases those you know similar patterns that you find, but also the differences in the particular locations. And so I wondered um, how the research unfolded. And I was thinking about this, like from the perspective, from the planning perspective, where um, did you plan to undertake field work in all of these places first? Or did you begin in one particular site and then just kind of add sites along gradually o- over time? Um, so I was just wondering how, how field work sort of unfolded for you across across all of these different trips and across these different locations?
1: Yes, and that, that's, a, I mean, that's, that's a wonderful question. And as you said, you know, um, the, the ethnography and the research really unfolded. And this is like, this is a, a particular world that um, indigenous Maya populations use to refer to children and they they say that children unfold, that uh, to say that they find their own path with time, and that you have to listen. So, I I would say that you know, um, I did not plan to have these four cases together in a book um, until um, really after my PhD. So there have been no limits in. and and not, I would say, like a statistical selection of places, um, but really like a gradual incorporation of sites and problematics. Sometimes it was the site first and then the problematic. Sometimes it was the problematic that came first and then the location, the geographical location would come later. But uh, something that you you know that I that I that I think about is that because it was it is this is not a book that comes out of a PhD, I had way more flexibility in thinking what could be there. So the my my attention to a particular site started in in Celestun in the community that is trapped in a natural protected area in the Gulf of Mexico. I started to look at Telestum because I needed and I wanted a comparative binational project to work on development policies that could talk to my research in Spain, in Taramundi, where the European Union and the World Bank were channeling a lot of money to work on rural tourism as a development strategy. And by talking to a colleague in my doctoral um, program, she mentioned Celestun and she said, you know what, like the kind of funds that you're talking for that are happening in Spain are also happening in this place in the Yucatan Peninsula that I don't know if you know, um, that is called Celestun. So since I knew the Yucatan Peninsula, I had never heard about Celestun. Um, and I I soon realized that I had actually known this place as the pink flamingo spot where I went in 1994 so that that you know serendipity really caught my eye and I started to read about um, ecotourism development in theestoon and started to read about the connections in international funding bodies for uh, alternative strategies to in in both cases to see sand and sand development projects. And uh, Mexico and Spain are the one of the two largest economies that depend on this form of resort tourism as a main economic strategy. So I went to Celestun um, as part of this binational comparison. Um, as part of this binational comparison that demanded fieldwork Adam Alinovsky. So I had to be there living during six months first, then a year, then coming back regularly for periods of no less than three months. And it was by being there and by, you know, observing firsthand the voracity of tourism transformations in the Yucatan that at the time that I was finishing my PhD, I really comprehended that uh, the binational comparison that I was creating was a way too big project. So I really understood that I had to select either working on, on Yucatan or working on Spain. And in Spain, you know, in the rural community I was working with, because it was deeply marked by aging of the populations I had um, you know unfortunately been losing all my friends there um, because they were they were dying they were aging they were old and the village was starting to be empty and it became um, very hard for me to find ways to relate relate back to that geography so I decided to Give an opportunity to Yucatan and start thinking there, and I had the opportunity for to apply for a Fulbright fellowship, where I said I'm going to conceptualize what I would like to be. This book, where I can compare um, different places that are connected through tourism, um, th- through the interviews I've done to, with tourists in Telostún, that were mostly talking about Cancun. Um, you know, archaeological sites as Chichen Itza, but also like this more noble form of tourism that was Hacienda tourism, because they were all very close um, together. So I I got this uh, fellowship and then, you know, the possibility of doing fieldwork in these other communities became real and at the same time you know I was working with some colleagues at the University of Oxford and we applied for a very nice comparative um fellowship on flexible cities where we were comparing where we were aiming to compare um you know how cities in the Caribbean like Cancun that I wanted to go but it was like a really expensive place to be um, how they were bouncing back after a particular crisis. So we selected Cancun and the other part of the team um, selected another community in Africa and decided to look not that much as um, as natural disasters, but kind of like social disasters um, and, and decided to work with malaria. And we were thinking about crisis and we were thinking about how people and particular places become resilient and we got that grant too and with that grant I had for the very first time in a lot of years the possibility of doing fieldwork in Cancun um, and a lot of doors were open there too because when you go from you know with the stamp of a university in Spain um, that opens door but when you go with a you know, stamp of Oxford University and speaking English and speaking Spanish in Cancun, that opened, um, like, a completely different register of people for me that was really interesting. And that's how, you know, I got Cancun into this story um, as part of a, also a binational comparison with something else, but um, went um, sidetracked into this major research. And the work in, haciendas, in the haciendas it started really simultaneously at the very first time. Like a lot of the people that had um, hotels in Cancun and um, that were suffering from Hurricane Bilma, you know, um, destruction were kind of looking at investing their money in lands in Yucatan and the haciendas was starting to become Market. Um, so I started to think about, you know, go through my interviews in Celezun and see what were the places that tourists talked about the most. And there was um, a reference to Roberto Hernandez, who owned these five fantastic haciendas that he wanted to reconvert into luxury. Uh, Luxury tourism destination. So I visited them all, and you know, I decided to work in Temozón Sur, which was the pioneer one. And then, um, and, and and these cases, to me, you know, were representative of the major front stages of tourism in the Yucatán: um, resort tourism, beach tourism, natural tourism, and cultural tourism. And by working at the Thimbe staff with some colleagues there, I had an indigenous colleague, Manuel, that kept telling me, you know, t- tourism and the communities you're working is not the real Yucatan. You really need to come to my village to Tequit and I will show you what the real Yucatan is, where you will find like real culture. And that's how Tequit came into being in the text. And even even when Manuel was from there, um, we we went there on a summer afternoon and I could see everybody suing at their homes and we were wondering I was wondering what, what are these people confectionating? And he said, Well those are like why like tourism and uniforms and and souvenirs and it was in that conversation and both looking at each other that he suddenly saw and I suddenly saw that this place was completely connected to the other cases I was studying so i would say that's like the behind the scenes story of why these four places and why them together
2: mm-hmm. that is so so interesting to hear how um all of that all of that came together um and so finally so tourism is a process that implicates a wide swath of people and has become a ubiquitous part of travel and i would think that many people would find themselves as a tourist at some point or another and so um, are the processes that you identify in the Yucatan applicable to other locations and what should we take from the study as potential tourists um, ourselves?
1: Yes, definitely. And, you know, John Uri and Sigmund Bauman, they said, uh, you know, modernity came with this imposition like we're tourists even when we do not travel and even when we do not want to be tourists. So, I think that as far as you understand tourism as a major vector that animates the territorial transformations of our contemporary geographies, you will see a lot of elements that can travel with you to other places. I would say most of the dynamics that I have highlighted in the book are applicable to other, um, I don't like to call them this way, but like third world economies or the global south and places that are hyper-dependent on tourism as a sector of the economy. Um, and and as you said, you know, the important thing I would say is to look at tourism as a process. It's not just a business, it's not just a sector of the economy, it's not it's not just, you know, a rite of passage in your life or a punctual experience. Like destinations are not there. Destinations need to be produced and made stable in a particular way for you to consume. So I would say, you know, as tourists, we have a lot of, a lot to reconsider, um, a lot of forms of travel that we could reconsider. And thinking that we, that tourism is travel for pleasure, Right. But traveling for pleasure stops being a right, as the UN says, in the very moment in which it is predicated upon oppressing others and upon, you know, creating very unsustainable uh, relations regarding the environment. So there's a lot to reconsider. There is a lot to rethink in terms of the relationship between tourism and climate change and tourism and crisis in general. And I think coronavirus, a pandemic right now, is pointed at those crises um, highly, and it's also pointed at the centrality of tourism in the organization of our contemporary societies. I think we need to elaborate and strategize, and this is, you know, strategize in decolonial tours, and this is something that is going on right now very strongly within critical tourism studies. Um, and we need, a lot of education and exposure to cultural diversity and to other points of view. I would say, you know, that leisure should never come at the expense of others. And that as far as we can see that um, we need to react and we need to resist. And as Marisol de la Cadena would say, you know, there is a lot of uncommoning to do there, Mm -hmm.
2: That's very really important. And so finally, um, now that this book is out and in the world, um, what are your projects that you have on the horizon um, or any current projects that you're working on now?
1: Yes. Uh, thank you for that question. Like, I, I think that my cur- current projects, you know, they grow organically from this book. I've just also finished like an edited book on tourism geopolitics. With my colleague uh, Mary Mostafanetkar from the University of Manoa and Roger Norum from the University of Oulu in Finland, Finland, um, and this volume tourism geopolitics will be out and made open access by the University of Arizona Press in the spring 2021. It's already there in the catalog. It's a book that you know that we conceptualized, I think, in the last of the stages of writing stuck with tourism where I became increasingly concerned with the role of tourism in larger geopolitical issues. In particular, its absence in discussions around climate change, but also in its um, using governmental discourses to legitimize increased surveillance and the militarization of public spaces in many European countries. Um, so that's one project I, I've worked on that is it's almost out, um, I, um, I become increasingly interested in questions of, you know, mega infrastructure projects and emancipatory politics. Um, and, and that grows organically from the conclusion of the book where I was exploring the embrace of Train Maya, this large rail infrastructure development commissioned by the left wing, Mexican government in the name of redistribution. So I kept asking how how is it possible that an ecologically unsustainable mega project such as this one is being embraced by left wing governments in the name of el pueblo, you know, of the people? Um, and in this project on you know mega infrastructure projects, I'm really interested in you know in asking questions about about the future in asking questions about like, for example, you know, what drives the temporal and spatial coincidence of mega development projects uh, and emancipatory projects and how it is that these seemingly opposed projects can come together um, and what are really the future making capacities of these projects. I've, I'm working on, um, on, on, you know, on, on different chapters for different edited collections. One of them works on, looks a little bit more at the case of the Haciendas and looks at, you know, the construction of a lived archive, um, a lived transnational archive that is shaping the production of what Mayanness is in Yucatan. And the other one really looks at something that is not in the book, but it's is mentioned here and there, and it's the emergence of solidarity tours that are entirely community-driven, not state-led driven, and the way in which they can open up alternative futures that are ideally more sustainable, are more, um, you know, community-driven. And, you know, I'm doing a lot of work in a group that I co-direct with my colleague Alana Silver at UC San Diego. That is called the Nature, Space and Politics Group, where we're really looking right now at questions of, you know, speculative writing and also technoscientific utopias. So questions that deal a lot with time um, and with climate change.
2: Great. So we'll look out for um, all of that work that's going to come out. So I have been speaking with Dr. Matilde Cordoba-Azcarate about her book, Stuck with Tourism, Space, Power, and Labor in Contemporary Yucatan, published by University of California Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Reagan. A pleasure being with you.